I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hello and welcome to The Hedgehog and the Fox, a new podcast seeking answers to questions large and small. My name is George Miller, and on this week's programme, I'm talking to historian and biographer Helen Fry about the London Cage a little-known but crucially important secret Second World War interrogation centre in Kensington Palace Gardens in the heart of London. It's got so many threads of the wartime that's yet to be told, really. I mean, you have this secret interrogation centre in the heart of probably one of the wealthiest enclaves of London. And, you know, behind that um, facade you've got all these stories emerging that you would never know as a casual person walking past um, at that time. And that's what I love about this. It's unpeeling those secret stories from something which on the surface looks uh, very grand, you know, the grand house, but it's a house of secrets. In the interview, Helen talks about the kind of prisoners who were sent to the cage, the controversial techniques that were used on them, including so-called truth drugs, and the cage's post-war role in pursuing war criminals. But we started with how the cage came to be created in the first place. At the very beginning of the Second World War, there was no formal techniques for interrogation, if you like, um, but it was recognised to be very important that prisoners that you would capture would have an awful lot of information in their heads, and how are you going to get it out of them? That was a very real question. And the British intelligence services decided to open an interrogation site, it was actually a secret interrogation site, uh, in Kensington Palace Gardens, so right there in the heart of London, completely away from the public eye, and obviously very discreet. I mean, the prisoners were primarily brought at night, and Kensington Palace Gardens is quite a discreet place anyway. It was a sort of elite establishment. It wasn't wasn't just for your run-of-the-mill prisoner of war. So who were the British seeking to, um, to crack at the London cage? Well, these were the prisoners that couldn't be handled at any of the other sites. And there were a number of what they called them cages. There's a a slang for interrogation centres around Britain because it was absolutely crucial. I mean, we had tens of thousands uh, of prisoners, all with information. And if we could crack that. But there were obviously those that couldn't be cracked under interrogation. And those diehard, particularly the diehard Nazis and SS, found themselves at the London cage and they had a bit of a tougher time than they would have anywhere else. To what extent have you been able to find out how much this was, this was all sort of planned and to what extent it was being improvised? You know, you said at the start that there wasn't really a sort of setup up um, or interrogation techniques. 
Well, the commanding officer was Colonel Alexander Scotland. He was actually the nephew of George Bernard Shaw. And he had a long experience, even in the Second World War, of interrogating German prisoners. So he had a lot of experience. It was all pretty much, his techniques were in his head, if you like. But also, he'd been a prisoner of the Germans for a year in World War I. And so he observed how they treated him. He tried to understand the German mindset, understand the enemy, if you like. And so, as the most experienced interrogator, he formulated, effectively, our interrogation guidelines. He, from what you describe in the book, was a a fascinating and, and complicated man. And not only had he been the prisoner of the Germans in the First World War, he had a very long association with Germans, German culture, and indeed had been in the German army. Yeah, Colonel Scotland had uh, served, well, British intelligence, if you like, for almost four decades, starting at the end of the Boer War. And then because he was trading in certain uh, commodities, he was based in South West Africa, to trade with the German army at that time, uh, the interwar years, um, you had to be in the German army. So he donned German army uniform, um, not in a combatant role. And he spent his whole time, you know, observing and taking in the way people behave. And he became one of our our experts, if you like, our most experienced experts, not only on interrogation, but also on understanding how German culture works and that kind of thing and understanding Germans. So he spoke fluent German. And as you say, he had this sort of insight into to the mindset, certainly of the German military machine. Yeah, because he came to the attention of Adolf Hitler in 1937 when he was on a tour of Germany. This was Colonel Scotland. He had spent a few years in South America at a critical time and he was observing, I believe, for the intelligence services, although that's not proven, he was observing the German communities living in South America. And Adolf Hitler was very interested by that. And so Scotland was called to a clandestine meeting in Germany with a, a colleague that he knew, a German colleague, and then the door opens and in walked Adolf Hitler and they kind of had a chat, according to Colonel Scotland. So I called a chapter in my book, uh, Coffee with Hitler. So the buildings were requisitioned in 1940 and, and operations started quite quickly and prisoners arrived at, at, at a fair clip, didn't they? They were coming through the doors. What were they trying to get out of these prisoners? First of all, some of the intelligence that they had, military combat and that kind of thing, but uh, Colonel Scotland was really interested in their military training because he wanted to, to look for the weaknesses in the German war machine. And you could understand how well trained someone was. Um, later on, there were younger uh, soldiers, German soldiers who hadn't really had, they was, you know, enlisted so quickly, they hadn't really had much training and they were the easiest ones to crack. But not only that, understanding the morale in Germany, you know, finding out from the prisoners whether some of our propaganda stuff was working. And also they were interested particularly in, in new technology, weren't they? You know, chemicals, weapons, uh, communications, all that sort of thing. Absolutely crucial. And in fact, there was some group of engineers who'd been moved from Penny Mundo on the North German coast 
uh, to Africa. And when they came into the London cages as captured prisoners, they were really angry because they'd found themselves on the front line and in danger, whereas at Penimunda they'd felt they hadn't been in danger and they were doing some interesting work there. So Scotland already had prisoners who were quite angry with their own regime. And again, they were quite open in interrogation. They were some of the easier prisoners that he had, but most of them were pretty hard to crack. What do we know about the pressures that were exerted on those prisoners who were hard to crack? Rumours about the London cage are always kind of emerge about allegations of physical, uh, you know, torture and that kind of thing. But it was also psychological. That could be is equally disturbing. So if I give an example, a prisoner might be quite difficult in interrogation and Scotland would write across his file NR. And the prisoner thought, oh, you know, I'm about to be transferred to Russia, nach Russland. But actually it meant not required. And just subtle things, it might sound very simple to us, but that would be really worrying to a German prisoner if he thought he was about to be transported to our allies, the Russians, while well, he knew that his fate was pretty much over. In addition to those psychological pressures, there were some pretty harsh punishments. We know that, don't we, were, were meted out on occasion of harsh treatments. Our life inside the cage is kind of upstairs, downstairs, and if you're interrogated upstairs, it's pretty kind of routine. It could be tough at times, but routine. But if a prisoner went down into the basement, then that's where the nasty stuff allegedly happened, dark and damp, uh, solitary confinement. But not only that, a bit of kind of physical stuff as well. There are slightly more bizarre episodes in the history of the London Cage, such as the use of truth drugs. What can you, what can you tell us about that? This is one of the major revelations to come out. Uh, we think of the Cold War period when it's now widely known that all sorts of drugs and experiments were going on in America, the MK Ultra project. But what we don't think about is the origins of that. And the origins go back to the 1930s when the British, Americans, Russians and, well, and the North Koreans even were experimenting with various drugs and combining drugs. And in the wartime itself, it's now known um, from a careful reading of the files that truth drugs were used at the London cage on unsuspecting prisoners. I mean, they didn't know. They didn't realise it was happening. And even some of the interrogators themselves might be interrogating a prisoner not realising the prisoner was under the influence of drugs. Did that experiment continue or did they decide that it wasn't, it wasn't working or it wasn't ethical or did that go on throughout the war? There were various stages at which the military and naval intelligence were interested. In fact, naval intelligence decided, I think, much quicker that you know, the so-called truth drug doesn't really work. You might relax a prisoner, but in fact, a, you know, a glass of whiskey is equally as effective um, in, a, in a friendly chat as in a tough interrogation. The military mu went much longer in various kind of experiments in uh, the truth drugs. But, of course, naval intelligence, having experimented on themselves, had decided that it probably wasn't um, useful. But, it, interestingly, the head of naval intelligence at the time, Godfrey, said that, you know, we're not to worry about ethical concerns as such, as to whether, as long as we don't cause any long-term damage to the prisoner, or bad publicity, if it gets out. So, do you get that general impression that as long as as long as nothing too nasty got out, then a blind eye higher up would be turned to what was going on at the London cage. 
I'm not sure it's even a bl turning a blind eye. I think it was sanctioned. Um, certainly naval intelligence authorised, said it was acceptable to use drugs in interrogation for, for a time, as long as you know it didn't permanently damage the health, it was a short-term effect on the prisoner, and it didn't get out into the public domain. Now, the imperative clearly was gathering intelligence to help win the war until the war was over. And then the London cage, far from being um, dismantled, really entered a, a new and perhaps equally important phase of its life. So can you, can you say what its role then became? Yeah, I mean, you could argue it's probably its most important role. It became then known as the War Crimes Investigation Unit, and it was described as the most important centre outside Germany, because, of course, there were huge teams in Germany preparing evidence for, the, for Nuremberg, for example. But nobody really focuses on the London cage, but it was absolutely pivotal. And they constructed, compiled thousands of reports and new evidence that went to Nuremberg. And as a direct result of their work, they were specifically hunting down Nazi war criminals who'd perpetrated terrible atrocities against Allied airmen and soldiers, you know, shooting them in cold blood surrendering troops and that kind of thing and so without the London cage they would not these war criminals would never have been brought to justice they just didn't have the resources within Germany the allied resources in Germany to cope with it so specific cases would be identified and agents in the field would identify individuals who would then be brought back to or brought to London for interrogation Colonel Scotland had a list of those that they knew or suspected of committing various atrocities. Sometimes they had to start with, with no known suspects and they had to work out which regiments were in which areas of the atrocities at the time, which German regiments. And they used sometimes RAF intelligence if it was airmen, atrocities against airmen. But Scotland dispatched his own interrogators to, to hunt down the war criminals and some of them were in hiding in false names and it took up to three years in some cases and then they were brought back to London they were not by and large were not interrogated in Germany uh, if it was a war crime against the allied personnel they were brought to the London cage and they had a pretty rough time and presumably some of these um, senior Nazis were a, a much tougher crew than perhaps a, a disaffected airman these were the toughest hardest that that Colonel Scotland and his team would ever have to interrogate, far tougher than anything they'd had in the war. And so you find, for example, in, in autumn 1946, it just happened to be that the cage was full, the London cage was full of, of SS war criminals, and they were nasty, they were, their attitudes were seriously nasty and they were bragging about the crimes they committed. During the war, the imperative was simply to get information that would be useful, but after the war, it all had to hold together in, in a court of law, didn't it? So slight shift there too in, in what was required of the interrogators. It was absolutely crucial that during interrogation, various information came out, yes, but Colonel Scotland and his team made sure that those Nazi war criminals at the end of the war wrote their full statements and signed them. And there were various questions later as to whether that had been done under duress or not, and it's not clear. But then they, of course, that's a legal statement to use in a court of law. But alongside that, Colonel Scotland and his team also had to piece together, as detectives, you know, the, the other physical evidence 
of atrocities and statements from eyewitnesses. An open court of law was where allegations were made by some of those Nazi prisoners that the techniques used in the London cage had been, um, what, what should we say, illegitimate. Yeah, it's really the tables turn quite unexpectedly and the London cage almost itself becomes a subject of, you know, having committed its own war crimes, question mark. And one of the prisoners, probably the most loathed prisoner, I think Scotland refers to Fritz Nochlein, SS General, um, he'd ordered the cold-blooded shooting of 124 British soldiers who had surrendered. And this was back in 1940. Well, finally, in 1946, he's, he's in front of Scotland in the London cage. And um, when it finally comes to his trial, Nochlein's trial, his lawyer argues that his statement was taken under duress and he was actually subject of a whole list of torture and physical abuse and that kind of thing. And so Colonel Scotland found himself in the dock then, answering these charges, and it really looked as though the whole case might collapse at one point. It's quite striking that the, the people, the men who worked in the London cage, really didn't divulge what had gone on there after the war. Maybe with one notable exception, which was, was Colonel Scotland himself, and he attempted to publish a memoir in the 1950s. What was, he, what was he seeking to do? Was he seeking to burnish his reputation, to seek acknowledgement? Or was he... What, how, do, how do you read that decision? Because it really sort of runs counter to what most of, the, most of the other men abided by the Official Secrets Act, which would have banned Scotland too. Well, I think it says quite a lot about Scotland's character. I mean, he was a pretty... a bit of a maverick... It has been said, or he said himself, uh, all the allegations about from the Nazi war criminals that he, of various treatment, he wanted to justify how he had actually you know, managed the situation. He said only on a couple of occasions did I lose my temper and, and kind of hit someone. And that's all he says um, to justify his reputation. I don't think he was seeking fame and fortune. I just think he wanted something on the record. They'd done something important in the London cage and he could see that its history would be well blotted out of World War II history and it largely was to be honest but of course MI5 and and the intelligence services were concerned about how much he was going to reveal and so his original manuscript was still although today we don't deem it to be very sensitive it still revealed too much for comfort and so of course a heavily redacted version came out which didn't tell us very much at all. So in the 50s things were still sensitive but were you surprised that there still there are still areas of sensitivity about what, what actually went on because you you discovered that when you when you researched it that not everything is freely available. No not everything's fully available and I and then we get into the realm of speculation what has been uh, held back and why uh, in terms of some of the, well, the forced so-called suicides, that is still sensitive. I mean, I just Prisoners who, dis- who died in custody. Prisoners who died in custody at the London cage is deemed sensitive even 70 years later. And I'm, I'm not sure why. Um, my rationale would be perhaps to think that if there was some dirty business there, then those Nazi war criminals, they're... they're convictions could have ultimately been overturned and then would question the rest of of what we did as allies and in terms of justice yeah the short the short term i guess in the immediate post-war would be perhaps these convictions are unsafe but it seemed to me there was a wider question about the the narrative that this country tells about the war 
And the London cage just doesn't really fit very happily into that, does it? Because it's a rather murky, you know, lines were crossed, rules were bent and so on. Yeah, we get a lot of stories now about the secret war and the fantastic job places like Bletchley Park have done um, and the bugging operation, for example, like at Trent Park. Um, We have the heroes and the great escapers and all that kind of stuff. And that's great. But of course, there is always the darker side. And that has been suppressed over the years. And, And one could say, look, it's a blot on you know intelligence landscape there is it because in each generation things like this happen and we just would rather not think about it or is it genuinely that you know the services are embarrassed by it and just would rather it wasn't you know a dirty washing you know in public the book is a is a fascinating a compelling sometimes a shocking read sometimes an entertaining read but do you hope that it also contributes something to maybe a more mature evaluation of of the war and the British role in the war? It is part of our history and I think it is important that the truth comes out. It's part of understanding the dilemmas. Um, let's face it, you know, we could have been invaded by Nazi Germany. Our history could have been very, very different. Our survival was at, at threat and this is part of the story which helped to win the war. Okay, it's a dark side but it was, one could argue, perhaps it was necessary. We shouldn't just tell the heroic gung-ho stories because it's all part of fighting pure evil. You know, was it morally justified? It's a very interesting question. I was talking to Helen Fry about her new book, The London Cage, The Secret History of Britain's World War II Interrogation Centre, which is published by Yale University Press. You can find out more about it on Yale's website. Do visit thehedgehogandthefox.com for news of forthcoming and archive interviews in this series. And if you enjoyed this podcast, subscribe to the programme on iTunes, where you can catch up on any interviews you've missed. Until next time, thank you very much for listening, and goodbye.